0: Welcome to another episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg, and our Inland Mermaid co-host remains Vicki nichols Goldstein,
1: And it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Today, we're really going in-depth with our guest, author and ocean enthusiast, Susan Casey. Susan's written three best-selling ocean books, soon to be four. She's a former editor-in-chief of O, the Oprah magazine, and also an award-winning journalist. Her latest book, The Underworld, Journeys to the Depth of the Ocean, explores the deep sea that makes up 90% of our planet's living space, and tells the fascinating story of her recent years researching, getting to know, and becoming part of the deep submergence community that she reports on. But before we get into where you've been and what you learned in the inky depths of our ocean planet, Susan, why don't you tell us how you first connected the sea as a child in southern Ontario, Canada?
2: Well, yes, I was inland and surrounded by lakes when I was uh, growing up in Toronto, north of Toronto, and was always really fascinated by the fact that it seemed that there was this entire parallel universe going on beneath the surface and you couldn't see it. You could, but once you went through that sort of looking glass, you'd be in in this other realm where completely different rules applied. And I always found that incredibly fascinating, kind of scary was really scared of fish as a as a child and took actually well into my 20s before I kind of overcame my fear of fish. But how I got into the ocean was through open uh, competitive uh, distance swimming in open water races and things like that. And I was racing around Hawaii it would finally sort of open my eyes and notice how beautiful everything was. And my fear of fish was finally dispelled after I spent several years reporting, uh, hanging out with the scientists who were studying great white sharks at the Farallon Islands for my first book, The Devil's Teeth. Because once you've spent a lot of time around great white sharks, it's kind of silly to be scared of sunfish. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I mean, start with the biggest fish to overcome your fears. (laughs)
2: Yeah, At, At that point, I was okay with any kind of fish.
0: So and and that was also your first book The Devil's Teeth and then you wrote The Wave and Voices in the Ocean about waves obviously and dolphins and what took you into the deeper realm the depths of the ocean that you report on now
2: Well I think you know I always wanted to write about it ever since I was out at the Farallon Islands and that is some Mysterious water. And on any given day, anything could pop through the surface. One day there were 40 blue whales lunch feeding, or there might be a 20 foot great white shark, or there might be a Mako shark. Or, you know, I was introduced to tenophores and siphonophores out there, which are these uh, deep water gelatinous creatures that I had no idea existed. So the idea that there, you know, there would be obviously a lot going on down there that we would never see really got my mind going about it. But I'm glad that this was my fourth book because uh, it's, a, it's a big topic. I think you mentioned 90% of the Earth's living space, but the waters below 600 feet are actually 95% of the Earth's living space. So, you know, it's, it's the vast, vast majority of our planet. I don't, it's really hard to wrap your head around how immense it is. So it, it took me some time to get the confidence, to get the sort of the science contacts and background that I needed to be able to take it on. But I always, always wanted to do it because it's the ocean writ large, right? It is the soul of the ocean.
1: In reading your book, I was really fascinated when you were describing the Juan de Fuca tectonic plates and all of the things that are going on on the bottom floor. And I was really intrigued when you said something along the lines of this subduction zone is all in. And that means one day it will be all out. And we've all kind of been hearing about this potential earthquake or the tidal wave. So what do you mean by that? I think that is so fascinating.
2: Well, so uh, what's happening on the bottom of the ocean are the largest geological features are moving against each other and away from each other, and they're... Uh, the te- tectonic plates, as they pull apart, create new seafloor and mountains are squeezed on either side of it. So you get the mid-ocean ridge, the Earth's largest geological feature. Um, that's where you find volcanic vents and all the amazing animals and ecosystems that uh, live around them. And on the other side of the plate, on one ed- edge is pulling apart, on the other side, it's banging into the plate next to it. It's It's butting heads with it. When that happens, and of course, this is a incredible amount of force involved in this, but it's happening very slowly. One plate is driven down beneath another and it eventually will sink back into the mantle. So one plate loses this wrestling match. And when that happens, the plates can slip and they're under such high tension. If they slip vertically, that's called a megathrust earthquake and that will displace water vertically, uh, which causes a tsunami. So not every kind of undersea spasm earthquake-related seismic spasm will cause a tsunami, but that kind of the subduction zone slipping, the plate slipping will. And there is that exact setup, as you mentioned, is right about 70 miles off the coast of the Pacific Northwest um, from, you know, Northern California all the way up to the southern part of Vancouver Island, as the Juan de Fuca plate is being subducted beneath the North American plate. um, And that's called the Cascadia subduction zone. So I think people in the Pacific Northwest are extremely aware of this. Maybe could be a little bit more aware of it, but starting to become very aware of it because uh, they know, scientists know, that along that subduction zone, there have been 9.0 earthquakes. There was one about 300 years ago, 323 years ago, to be exact, uh, that caused it incredibly large tsunami that went across the Pacific all the way to Japan. But more important, it would only take minutes, about less than 10 minutes for it to hit the, our own North American coastline in that region. So there's, there is a real uh, urgency about understanding how this works, what might happen if it releases again. And right now, the plates are not moving at all because, and that's what I mean by all in, the Wanda Fuca is completely jammed except for one very small area uh, against the North American plate. So that eventually, that log jam will break somehow. Could be a hundred years from now, could be tomorrow, but it's a, a pretty scary thought.
0: So it's interesting in your book, you talk about the history of what we thought was in the deep ocean and kind of the myths and fears and When scientific methods were developed, people still thought that as you went further down at the ocean, it became less sustaining of life and this dead zone. And then about 40 years ago, looking at a volcanic vent in the deep ocean discovered until then we thought the world was photosynthetic, all life was based on sunlight. And then there was this chemosynthetic life around these vents. Maybe you could tell us like this other life forms that exist on our planet.
2: Yeah, so there's really two sources of energy, uh, at least two sources. Uh, there's the top down from the sun and the bottom up from the thermal energy of the earth. And that, you're, exactly, you're, you're right, it was discovered in 1977 by scientists in the Alvin. And they, they knew that there was some hot water coming out of the seafloor somewhere, but they didn't expect what they found, which was this thriving ecosystem of animals that nobody had ever seen before which I called a Star Wars bar scene ecosystem because they were just, you know, you have eight foot tall tube worms with blood red plumes and albino crabs and they're all scuttling around in water that's 400 and 500 degrees Fahrenheit with all these chemicals uh, like hydrogen sulfide and all kinds of other chemicals that would be considered toxic to creatures on land. So um, it was an eye opener. It's like, okay, so here's another here's life taking a completely different approach. What else don't we know? What other approaches might there be? And of course, now they know that in um, microorganisms and microbes live as deep as a mile beneath the seafloor. There's a thriving deep biosphere as well. So it's going to be interesting to find out how many other amazing survival and resilience strategies we can learn about from going from the bottom up as opposed to the top down.
0: And we talked with, uh, in one of our, earlier episodes with Don Walsh, who was one of the first two humans to go into the Marianas Trench back in 1960. Uh, he was a Navy captain at the time. The more we learn, the more fascinating, the more important the uh, ocean depths become. But how do you get there? I mean, he went in this kind of reverse gondola full of uh, gasoline to keep it afloat. Tell us a little about the the technology and the machines that can take people to these depths.
2: Well, Full Ocean Depth, there are only two subs in the world that can take passengers. Um, one of them is owned by China. It's called the Fendouge. And the other one was privately owned. Uh, the Fendouge only uh, had its debut dive in 2022. But as I was reporting the book, in, I started in around 2002 late 2017 early 2018 i heard about a sub that was being built by triton submarines the the company that i think of as like the apple of submarine design because they're incredibly creative and really brilliant engineers Uh, and they were building it for a private individual who had commissioned it his name's victor Vescovo, and he's now well known in the ocean community because he um when that sub launched in 2018 december he then spent four years exploring all the hadal trenches, the deepest spots in the ocean that, uh, you know, on on occasion robots had gone down to, but no humans, um, except for the Mariana Trench, as you mentioned, but only three people. Don Walsh, Jacques Picard in the Trieste, and then, of course, James Cameron in 2012. So he was the fourth to the Challenger Deep, but the first to all kinds of other hadal trenches, like the Philippine Trench, uh, the Kermadec Trench, you know, the sub that Triton built for him was called the Limiting Factor. And to my great fortune, I got to dive in it during my reporting. And it is really something. I mean, it's a five foot diameter, t- three inch thick titanium sphere, just like being inside a perfect little spherical rocket ship. And it, it, it you know, it, it's a very tricky problem to try to create a full ocean depth sub that's certified, that's classed, that's safe. that can make repeated trips.
0: Maybe because you've been there, you can describe briefly people, even divers familiar with kind of the the surface ocean, but describe the different layers of the ocean as you go down into it.
2: Yeah, I always say if you see a, an animal and you know its name, it's probably in the upper layer, the sunlight layer, top 600 feet. Uh, and then when you get below that, you come to the top layer of the deep ocean, the ceiling of the deep ocean. And that's called the twilight or mesopelagic zone uh, from 200 meters to a thousand meters. So about 600 feet to about 3,300 feet. And below that, the midnight zone or the pathopelagic zone is from 1,000 to 3,000 meters, or about 3,300 feet to 10,000 feet. Below that is the abyssal zone, the largest ecosystem on Earth by far, uh, 10,000 to 20,000 feet, or 3,000 to 6,000 meters. And then below that is the Hadal zone, named after Hades, the god of the underworld, 6,000 meters to almost 11,000 meters. Um, The Challenger Deep right now, best measurement that we have for the deepest spot is 35,876 feet. I don't know it in meters off the top of my head, but so almost 36,000 feet.
0: And most of this blackness is actually filled with light, using light to attract prey or to escape. Tell, tell us what you saw there.
2: Yeah. So the twilight zone is is a lively place and it's full of creatures that have bioluminescent capabilities and uh, about 80% of them. So it's, you know, it's not the case on land. We have relatively few creatures that light up, like fireflies, some fungi, um, some insects, some worms, not that many. But in the deep, it's really, it's a a key strategy for survival. And they use it for all, they wield light for all sorts of different reasons, to attract a mate, for different ways of hunting, to um, actually camouflage themselves. Uh, um, I mean, there's nowhere to hide, right? They can't go into a hole. They can't hide behind a bush. There's just They've got all these other ways of basically maneuvering through that zone, living, mating, hunting, avoiding becoming prey, and light plays a central role in all of that for them. Um, the bioluminescence continues through the deep water, but it is relatively uh, lessened at the at the in the hadal zone. There is bioluminescence, um, but it isn't at anywhere near near the same sort of frequency, or um, you know, you don't get the same density of it that you do in the upper parts of the deep ocean like the twilight zone and the midnight zone and it's pretty flashy i mean it can be really spectacular yeah i always tell people that the deep ocean is everything you love about the ocean but add a few orders of magnitude and (laughs) My thesis when I went into this book was, you know, we always think going downward is trouble. You know, hell is down there and we really want to go upwards. We want to expand. We want to rocket into space. We want to conquer. And going into the deep ocean is a journey into darkness, into, uh, you know, the unknown, into it's more of a journey of submission because we don't get to set the rules down there. It's 16,000 pounds of pressure per square inch at the bottom of the Mariana Trench and there's no negotiating that.
0: We recently had Tony Lawson the chief engineer for Doer Marina on the show because a lot of people think that it's going down in a man or woman submersible is really dangerous because of the Titan disaster, the implosion of that vessel, but Tony was saying this is that was an outlier, that wasn't standard oh, yeah. and that this is a a really safe safely engineered community, the submergence, the submarine community. You certainly would know about that.
2: I agree 100%, but it isn't even a matter of opinion because um, statistically speaking, prior to the Titan, there hadn't been a fatality in a man deep sea submersible for almost 50 years. So it it is, in fact, uh, the safest mode of transportation on Earth. But the Titan was just an aberration. I mean, and everybody knew it was an aberration. And I think I was really um, interested to see if people could make that distinction when I went out on my book tour. And I think people really do understand. I think things like seeing that it was controlled by a video game controller and, you know, lights from Camping World and stuff. Really, people registered that, but also it was made of the wrong materials. It was the wrong shape for the deep ocean. And that isn't, you know, it was a cylindrical shape because he wanted to get five people in there because that would make sense on his business plan. But the deep ocean doesn't care about your business plan. And once you get to, to the depth that they were at, 4,000 meters, um, if you want to have a cylindrical shaped hull, you're going to have an 80 ton, 80 ton machine because a sphere is the only shape that can distribute those pressures symmetrically and efficiently without creating a weak spot. So it just was doomed to fail. And and unfortunately, it failed in the most tragic way imaginable. But no other deep sea submersible has ever imploded. and No other deep sea submersible ever will. So the first dive I made was to through the twilight zone in a in a sub that had a plexiglass spherical hull and they can make those plexiglass hulls up to about 6000 feet deep now and they're trying to make one that will go 13000 feet deep but once you get to at this particular moment in time below 6000 feet you're really talking about sitting in a titanium or a steel sphere um, you know, with viewports, a relatively small viewports, but you know that's what the Alvin has, that's what Victor sub has, that's what the Chinese and Japanese and French subs have. But so, but sitting in a plexiglass hull is spectacular because you feel like you're just floating in a psychedelic aquarium, and you can see absolutely everything. Uh, so filmmakers love it, and scientists love it, and there's obviously a lot to see in the twilight zone because um, I'm, I call it the Manhattan of the deep because there's, there are more animals in the twilight zone, many of them very tiny. Uh, as I said, 80% of them can light up and sparkle and glimmer. More animals in that particular layer of the deep ocean than there are in all the other regions of the ocean combined. So it's a happening place. It's uh, it's cool to look at. You see all kinds of really amazing jellies and these tiny fish with giant teeth and i mean it's really something to see the twilight zone and in that particular sub you really get to see it
1: i want to go a little bit away from the beauty of the ocean and talk about the ocean as kind of our biological carbon pump and all of the things that the ocean does for us that we don't recognize and you know as you're as you're going down and deep what is it doing with our carbon dioxide how Does it help regulate our temperatures? Um, Walk walk me through that for our listeners. The ocean is basically
2: making the planet habitable for us. Um, In terms of what it does with our heat, I mean, it's not a simple question, but it does absorb a tremendous amount of our excess heat and carbon dioxide. And one of the reasons it can do that, that scientists are really fascinated by at the moment, is those little tiny animals in the twilight zone every night, they make a pilgrimage up hundreds of feet, maybe even a thousand feet, closer to the surface. They eat sun-nourished phytoplankton, so there's carbon it, carbon in that. They swim back down. They excrete it, or they're eaten by other animals, and they are then excreted. And a lot of that carbon ends up sequestered in sediments in the seafloor. So it's out of it's. They're shuttling carbon from the atmosphere into the depths uh, for some period of time. And with it's the world's largest animal migration, it happens every single day. It just it's a vertical migration, but they're also doing some pretty heavy lifting uh, to remove all this carbon from the atmosphere.
0: So we have this intricate but massive system, this carbon pump, this this generator of climate and weather that's the ocean. At the same time, we know we're we're literally changing the physical nature of the ocean: its its temperature, its chemistry, its circulation, even its color. But there are people who are now looking to take industrial mining one of the most destructive forms of of uh, extractive industry and put it in the ocean depths so we've talked about this before but we need to keep talking about it the threat of deep sea mining
2: yeah what
0: what Um, was your exposure while you researched
2: i mean i've been following this for about a decade now and you know i keep hoping it will just go away but obviously it isn't and but what the, the more you learn about it, the more like horrifying it is on so many different levels. Um, it is at its, I mean, it will, as you mentioned, the areas that they're talking about affecting with this are so vast. It's hard to even know where to start. I mean, it isn't happening on an industrial scale yet, but there are interests that really want it to. And um, when it does, the first area to be mined is likely to be this two million um, square mile area called the clarion Clipperton zone between Mexico and Hawaii. And they will be basically vacuuming these metallic nodules off the seafloor, taking the top few inches of sediment as well, blasting these nodules, the sediments, which of course are completely alive with microorganisms and all kinds of m- microbial life. Um, all the animals that live under the nodules, top of the nodules inside the nodules it all goes blasting three miles up a pipe to a ship where the metal nodules are taken and then all the debris which is you know animal and mineral will be sprayed out at a depth of about 1200 meters so in some of the clearest waters of the twilight zone where all the creatures use bioluminescence to signal and hunt mate everything So it represents this huge disturbance in a part of the planet that hasn't had these huge disturbances before. It's a disturbance of the ecosystem. It's likely to really affect the ecosystem functions, which we don't understand. It will certainly erase the life in the region of the ocean that they're mining because um, these nodules take millions and millions tens of millions of years to form so they're not coming back on any sort of human time scale and they're not just lumps of metal they're more like corals or trees they've got organisms living in them and um, microbes have a role that they play in forming them although we don't fully understand that but you know the the notion that we have to go in and rake up the seafloor and throw up huge sediment plumes noise light vibration We don't know the impacts. We don't know what would be lost. To me, it just is a type of insanity. And we have to, it's a wisdom test. And I honestly think that if we do this, especially, we won't even know what we've lost for one thing, but we really do need to pass a wisdom test one of these days. I really fear for us if we actually go forward with this. And I have to say, there's nothing, of all the things that I don't like that happen in the ocean, bottom trawling, plastic pollution, noise pollution, you name it, this just dwarfs
0: them. There have been six extinction pulses in planetary history, and at least one of them was caused by uh, huge emissions of methane from the depths of the ocean. So more knowledge, obviously, more exposure to the ocean depths to understand that it is a delicate but vast living system. And I guess part of that, how we get that greater exposure is through books like yours. Uh, I mean, I talk about the blue beat, you know, the only part of the ocean resource is not fully exploited. It's good storytelling. What did you, uh, aside from two great trips into the depths, what what was your uh, best takeaway from this adventure slash uh, book research?
2: I think it was that we, we really don't know our own planet unless we know the deep ocean. I felt as though I was seeing parts of the earth and meeting the earth in a way that I never had before. So just because we don't happen to live in the deep ocean doesn't mean it's not the cornerstone of everything else. And so, yeah, I hope that people will take that ride because I often compare it to, it's like we live in a house with a a giant mansion and every room has some treasure in it, some incredible animal, some artwork, some artifact, some, like mystery. And we've only opened a couple of the rooms. Uh, So there is just so much more to know about our own planet and her magnificence. And, you know, I guess that mystery, I just find it so incredibly compelling. hope that every curious person will consider looking downward for their inspiration as well as
1: into the stars and the sky and all that. You said in some of your interviews that you need a certain amount of humility to adopt to our world and that it's an undervalued superpower. And I think that's such a great statement. Where did that come from?
2: Well, it's, it sort of relates to what I said earlier about the trip into the deep and into the journey inward as being a journey of um, it's not a journey of conquest. Nobody conquers the deep ocean. Nobody con I mean, all you have to do, I learned this during the wave stand in front of a 70-foot wave and tell me who's in charge here. (laughs) Uh, So the the deep ocean is, is that same equation on a very large scale, and you just can't help but see that we're not the only game on this planet. We're not the only important species. We are one beneficiary of all of this life and how it all manages to stay in balance and in a way that makes it perfectly habitable for us, but we're just a part of that. We're not in charge of it. So I love that the ocean always puts that into perspective, it always makes it clear in the most, you, you you have to be, I mean, the Titan is an example of somebody who went in, into the deep ocean without that humility saying, basically, I'm going to go down there and here's what I'm going to do. And the ocean said, hold my beer, you know? Uh-huh. I I just, um I love that about the, Whenever nature is larger than we are, and we get the sense, we get the chance to be awed and humbled. And and I think humility is really a part of awe. And in the book, I write that experiencing awe is like mainlining the truth. Because I think we always forget just the incredible miracles, large and small, that are always around us. And just for me, the ocean is is. It's just the most magnificent mystery, um, and to be able to observe it, I think is just so humbling,
1: deeply humbling. So with that, we wanna say thank you so much for being on the Rising Tide Ocean Podcast, and thank you so much for yet another beautiful book. Thank you, it's a pleasure. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Kerla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbard. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
2: Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves are free. The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Dear, dear. Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier.
1: Sparky! Come here buddy! Sparky! There you are! Good boy Sparky!